Um, we're going to have the reading now, which is in 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 12, and should appear on the screen behind me. Uh, and if you are a child and you've got your activity pack, this might be a good time to start, if you fancy. Okay, so 1 Samuel, chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us. They replied, you have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazel, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerob Baal, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die, for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. 
As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Thank you very much for that reading. Shall we pray and ask for God's help in understanding the passage? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit our eyes would be opened. We pray that we would be able to see the great truths that you are communicating through your word. We might be able to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and we might also be able to see exactly how it applies to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts wouldn't be hardened to your word tonight, but rather that we would be open to receive what you would have us know. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, you're in the middle of a series. Um, all about the uh, choice of Israel's king, in search of a king. And uh, tonight we've come to 1 Samuel 12, at the outset of this new king's reign, King Saul. Uh, Alan Greenspan, the former chair of the US Federal Reserve, once said, I guess I should warn you, if I turn out to be particularly clear you've probably misunderstood what I've said. Well, I was reminded of that quote as I came to chapter 12 of 1 Samuel because, as you may remember from last week, chapter 11 finishes on a high note with the people of Israel celebrating a famous victory and renewing their loyalty to their new king, Saul. And everything seems to be on a real high. But instead of chapter 12 continuing with that note of success, it seems to upend it completely. So it, the prophet Samuel tells people they've actually made a big mistake. So what's going on? We may have thought we understood in chapter 11, but now chapter 12, well, doesn't seem to fit quite so easily. So how do we explain it? And the answer is that chapter 12 follows chapter 11 because it reveals something very profound about the people's attitude to God. And it is that attitude to God which the prophet Samuel wants people to be clear about. Uh, it's an attitude that we need to be clear about today in our own lives. So although this, uh, this, this passage was written thousands of years ago, God is unchanging, and so we discover that there's relevance here for us, even though it seems to relate to the historical events of the dim and distant past. So what then do we learn here about the right attitude to God? Well, first, we discover that we have a faithful God a faithful God. On the day that he was martyred at the stake 
The second century Bishop of Smyrna is recorded to have told the Roman governor who urged him to deny Christ, four score and six years have I served him and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Saviour? Well, not all of us, I guess, when we're under pressure, certainly not pressure of that sort, would retain the conviction that God's record of being good to us will mean he sees us through whatever our problems are currently. That was the Bishop of Smyrna's conviction then. And actually the Bible is full of reminders to us to remember God's goodness, to keep remembering it because times will change, hard things will cross our path, and on those occasions, we need to remember God's goodness if we're going to carry on with the conviction that in the hardship that we're currently facing, God's goodness will see us through. Well, the Bible reminds us time and again of that. Last week, uh, I attended um, a meeting of the House of Bishops. Um, we seem to have one every month at the moment because Zoom has enabled us to do that and there's so many things to talk about. Uh, one of the discussions we had was how congregations ought to be encouraged to take part in communion services, you know, where we have the bread and the wine, and how we can do that during lockdown. And uh, I made the point in one of the discussions that um, we might be missing all sorts of things when we do these things digitally, um, with people in their own individual houses having bread and wine, we might miss all sorts of aspects of, of, of being united together. But one thing we can do, and that is, we can obey the command to have bread and wine in order to remember the Lord's death until he comes again. And whatever else Holy Communion stands for, one important thing is to remind us, we need to keep being reminded of God's great goodness to us in that he didn't stint himself in order to save us. He went to the cross. So that's a perpetual reminder to us of God's goodness. And here in chapter 12, we get all these reminders that Samuel wants to bring before the people to remind them of how good God is. So verses one to five, Samuel asks them to remember his own record, his own record. After all, Samuel is God's choice, a prophet. He's the one who is leading the people. And Samuel says, look at my record. Has there ever been anything exploitative about what I have done? No, it's been a sign of God's goodness. And then in verses six to 11, Samuel reminds the people of God's record his record in history, both of delivering them from slavery in Egypt, but then rescuing them with great leaders time after time. So when we get down to um, uh, verse 10, um, uh, sorry, verse 11, we read that the Lord sent Jeroboam and Bera and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. In other words, time after time, he raised up the right people for the moment. 
And of course, Samuel's reminder to the people about God's record comes just after they've had this extraordinary victory in chapter 11. And it was a victory that Saul led, their new king, but their new king said, when it had been completed in chapter 11, the Lord has worked salvation for Israel. So you see how time and again, this is telling us God is good. He is faithful. Now note a number of things about his faithfulness. First of all, God's faithfulness never failed. So even after the people sinned, time and again, God stayed faithful. He saved them when they repented. And secondly, note that God's faithfulness didn't stop bad things happening. So they had to go through these bad things, but God delivers them through them. And it's really important for us to remember that when we're tempted to put aside our trust in our faithful God and take matters into our own hands, to stop trusting him. Now, it's worth having a think about what sort of things tempt us to stop trusting God. Personally, I think one of the reasons why people stop trusting that God is faithful is that they lose confidence in his promises. And they lose confidence because they think he's promised something which he never promised them. That's a great way of losing confidence, isn't it? If you think someone's promised something which they never did, and you then hold them to account for something they never promised. Now, God has promised us certain things, but he's not promised us other things. So he has promised to bless his people, those who put their trust in him, but he hasn't promised that they will be exempted from ill health. He hasn't promised that they'll never be bereaved. He hasn't promised that they'll never have money troubles or dissatisfaction in life. The Bible doesn't promise that. What it does promise is that when we are anxious about what's going on in life, we can bring all our anxieties to God and the peace of Christ will guard us. The peace of Christ. In other words, there will be something that guards us where we know that everything is fundamentally all right, even though it's a bit of a struggle here and now. I was thinking about how that worked out in practice. I was thinking about another issue that we so often face, which sometimes takes us away from believing in the goodness of God, and that's when we face, when we face temptation. Have you had the experience of being tempted to do something wrong, and maybe you get through it, and then you're tempted again the next day, and then you're tempted the next day, and you keep repenting for when you fall into sin and, 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 and it doesn't seem to do any good because you keep being tempted with the same temptation. So when God says to us, to his people, that with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape. How come I keep being tempted? And I think to myself, well, maybe God isn't being faithful here. How do we work that out? Well, we go back to what God promised. 
What he promised was that with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that we are able to endure it. He will provide a way of escape. Our problem, my problem, is that when I'm tempted, I nearly always don't want a way of escape. How many times when you've been tempted, have you prayed to God, Heavenly Father, you know I'm being tempted, please provide me with a way of escape from this temptation. How many times do you do that? I find it very hard to say that prayer when I'm being tempted, because I don't want the temptation to stop. I want to fall into temptation. But do you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that when I do say that prayer, amazingly, God provides a way of escape. Yeah, something comes up to distract me. I fall asleep. Uh, something else happens. God's faithful to his promises. And we need to remember that, that God is a faithful God. God is a good God. And yet, very often, we forget that. So secondly, in 1 Samuel 12, we come next to a fickle people. A fickle people. Now, let's return to the event that precipitated Samuel's speech, which was the great victory over Nahash the Ammonite. Now, at one level, it's very easy to sympathize with the Israelites in their desire to have a king to lead them. The Ammonites, after all, were a huge threat. They were absolutely brutal and very successful. It's no wonder that the people despaired. You know, they were being encroached by this enemy who was getting ever closer to them. It's no wonder that the people weep in despair in chapter 11, verse 4, when they're actually threatened by Nahash. And he said, I'll, I'll let you live so long as I can gouge out your right eyes. But their answer, while the threat was still growing, is recorded in chapter 12, verse 12. They wanted to address the threat by being led by a king. And the reason they wanted a king well, it's back in chapter 8, verse 20. We just go to the next slide, that's it. In chapter 8, verse 20, why did they want a king? So that we also may be like all the nations. They didn't want to be the distinctive people of God, they wanted to be just like everybody else. They didn't want to follow an invisible king, they wanted to sort out their problems the way everybody else did. And now we can see why this was such a snub to God. And snub it was, as chapter 8 verse 7 makes clear, because God says to Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Despite all God's faithfulness, time after time, despite the long history of him keeping his word, despite that, they didn't want him. They wanted a physical king so that they could do things the rest of the world's way. 
Now, when we put it like that, we can see how that relates to us today, can't we? Because we needn't think that such a temptation is unique to people of Old Testament times. We all know, in our own experience, don't we, how the latest crisis we're having to face um, is always different from those we've experienced in the past. We always sort of separate them out. I know God was faithful in the past, but I didn't have to face then what I'm having to face now. I've got such a problem now that maybe I really ought to look for another way of dealing with it. Maybe um, now, in the face of this difficulty of a particular relationship breakdown, or this sudden increase in debt, or this almost overwhelming sense of loneliness, or whatever it is, I think to myself, I don't know if God's grace really will be sufficient for me, whether he really will give me strength to get through this. Wouldn't it be better if I took a shortcut? Wouldn't it be better if I short-circuited my business ethics? Wouldn't it be better if I entered this illicit relationship or just gave up pretending that faith made a difference? And we say this, despite the fact that God always keeps his promises. A fickle people. Well, let's move on and come thirdly to a fearful event. A fearful event. Despite the people's fickleness, God condescends to their weakness and he allows a king to be chosen. Now, we know why God does this, because, of course, uh, uh, he wants to give his people and to us uh, foretastes, really, of the great king who will one day come, uh, King Jesus himself. But uh, for here and now, here is Saul, and in verse 14, of chapter 12, he says to the people, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, well, good, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commands, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. In other words, you can't have it both ways. Obeying God doesn't say much. It's not as though God is saying, look, if you do this, then I will do that for you. What he's saying is, doing this is actually the best for you. It is the way in which you'll experience my blessing. Obedience is the blessing. So if you choose to obey, you step into God's blessing. And if you choose not to obey, well, you cannot have that blessing. You've stepped out of it. And to choose to step out of it, of course, is a terrible prospect, isn't it? As Samuel's action in verses 17 to 18 demonstrate. So Samuel says, he prays for this thunder and rain. And it is a terrible thing because anybody in the land at the time would have known that this wasn't mere thunder and rain. 
The wheat harvest, after all, which was going on at the time, was always at the beginning of the dry season. Rain would have been extremely rare, like having today's weather when Ascot is going on. You know, it would have been deeply unusual. And so, understandably, the people are afraid in verses 19 and 20. Because they see this thunder and rain, they see the hand of God, they see that they deserve his punishment, and they think that the fact that they've snubbed God means the end for them. And Samuel's response is interesting, isn't it? He says, verse 20, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because that's not God's plan for you, to bring you to an end. Don't be afraid. But then, isn't it odd, as you read on, you go from verse 20 down to verse 24, and you move from him saying, do not be afraid, to him saying, do be afraid. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. So which is it? Should we be afraid of God or shouldn't we? And the answer, of course, is both. You see, there is a healthy fear of God, of our holy God, which is uh, simply a recognition of his awesome power. He is much more powerful than Nahash, the Ammonite. He disposes of Nahash. And of course, although Nahash is a genuine terror, God is much more to be feared than Nahash because, of course, he has the eternal destiny of people in his hands. Do you remember Jesus Christ saying in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, that uh, don't fear those who can just take your physical life away. No, rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God is infinitely more powerful than any earthly ruler. Uh, but once our healthy fear of God drives us to choose his way, of course, we need to remember that that fear helps us to compare the power of God and the holiness of God with the limited power of the things that are genuinely concerning us here and now. I mean, I don't know what causes fear for you these days. What, why, you know, one of the reasons people compromise and give up on God is because they fear. They fear the reactions of other people around them if they, if they became known to be Christians. They fear um, standing against the prevailing culture. You know, how can we go on advocating marriage is just between men and women, you know, in the culture today. You know, I don't want to be known as that sort of person. Or I don't want to be aligned with Trump supporters. You know, we fear one thing after the other. And so we, 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 we sort of move slowly away from our faithful God. Why? Because we're fearing those things more than God. And we've forgotten that actually... If you're comparing the people to fear, God is much more to be feared. 
That's why it's healthy, because it helps us to compare these things. But once we've done that, once we've decided to opt, therefore, to go God's way, to step into his blessing, there is, of course, nothing left to fear. There's nothing left to fear after that. People may abuse us, but God is going to vindicate us. Sometimes he does it here and now. He's promised that one day he will do it absolutely for the whole world to see when Jesus comes again. That's why we do and we don't need to be afraid. Once we've stepped towards God and trusted in him, there is nothing left to be afraid of. And that's why the great hymn writer John Newton put it like this in the hymn Amazing Grace. It contains the line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." So a fearful event. Lastly, a future hope, a future hope. One of the saddest things that happened in my experience as a vicar, and I was a vicar for 21 years, I think, um, in Plymouth, in Devon. One of the saddest things that happened was when people only ever seemed to hear in my sermons what I said about the fearfulness of God and his judgment, without getting the point that fear is simply a wake-up call. After that, when we've woken up and we put our trust in God and we've decided to follow him, there is nothing whatsoever to fear, but everything to enjoy. And it was so sad when people didn't get that. So I can remember um, one of my congregation leaving the church and he left because he became obsessed by hearing, uh, he just became obsessed by the concept of God as fearful and as a judge, because he'd heard it once in one of my sermons. And he needed to move into a different church before he could get the message that actually God is a God of love and of grace. And he, he, he will accept anybody that turns back to him in repentance and puts their trust in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. So let me finish by emphasizing this point, because I don't want you to go away, whether you're online or whether you're here, I don't want you to go away just thinking about the fearfulness of God, the fearsomeness of God. Because this passage finishes by emphasizing his wonderful grace in verses 20 to 25. Because what we discover there, when people says to the, Samuel says to the people, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying God specializes in fresh starts. It doesn't matter how much you've snubbed God. It doesn't matter how often you've fallen into temptation. 
you know, you may think, I can't repent to God again of this same sin. I've seemed to commit it so often. I've asked for forgiveness so often. How can he take me seriously if I go back to him and ask for forgiveness again? You might say that. Let me tell you that this passage tells us that God will forgive, not because you deserve it. He will forgive for his great name's sake. That's what he says to the people here. And the re what it's getting at is God's reputation hangs on this. The reason he will forgive us and always does forgive us is not only because of the sufficiency of what Christ did for us when he died. He was big enough to take all our sins on himself when he died. He's doing it because he's promised that all who turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith will be saved. He's promised. His reputation hangs on it. For his great name's sake, he will forgive. Now, you may say, well, that's a very self-centered sort of thing to do. But let me tell you, it's a very reassuring thing. If you know that it doesn't hang on your ability to lick your sins, if you know that your salvation doesn't hang on that, it hangs entirely on Jesus Christ and what he achieved and God's promise, because his name depends on it, to forgive all those who turn to him. When you know that, it's hugely reassuring, isn't it? It means there's no reason, there's no reason to stay away from repenting because you think you can't, you can't be a hypocrite again and turn back to God. No, there's no end to the number of times we can do it because God is big enough for all of us. He's decided to create a people for himself. The people he's created for himself are you and me, people like us. And it's wonderful news. So just to recap then, uh, let's uh, remember God is a good God. Let's not turn to uh, doing things the world's way because we think that God won't, won't sort us out in our present problems. He is a faithful God. Uh, secondly, uh, let's, let's um, remember that yes, we are fickle. We've no grounds for it. We are fickle, but God remains faithful. And to help us along the way, let's remember also that God is a fearful God. He is a powerful God, much more powerful than anything else we might fear, which might tempt us to move away from him. And remembering that, let's rejoice in the wonderful hope God gives us. And none of us are excluded from it. Amen. Shall we say a prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you great thanks for this passage in 1 Samuel 12, for the fact that all of these things were written for our learning. All of these events that took place with your people of old are there to teach us, to point us to Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we thank you therefore for this great reminder that you are a good God.
that nothing you've ordained is going to be bad for us, that actually obeying you is a great blessing. Heavenly Father, um, we know that we can't do this in our own strength. We are fickle, just like the people of uh, Saul's day were. We are fickle, and yet, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can always turn back to you and trust you for promises you have made. And Father, we pray that we might remember your great power and therefore weigh that against all of the things that would tempt us to follow them in this world. Help us to remember that you alone have the power to give us eternal life. And so, Heavenly Father, please help us to rely on all that you have done for us, on your great goodness to us, and trusting in you, go forward hopefully following Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.